0: everyone, this is Michael Cox for the Finding Sustainability podcast. I'm here at the Sysync Center in Annapolis, where I will be for the rest of this week, engaging in one of the Sysync working groups. And I'm using my time here to interview several people that are a part of the working group that I'm in. And today I'm with Mark Lubell, who is a professor uh, in the Department of Environmental Science and Policy and the Director of the Center for Environmental Policy and Behavior at the University of California, Davis. Mark, I'm aware that before you got to Davis, you got your PhD at the SUNY system, right? It's at Stony State Brook, University State University of New University York, of New York at Stony, Brook. At Stony yep. Brook. Yeah. In political science, and I think it was about
1: 1999, was it or or 9998? You're going to make me look at my own CV to remember. Okay, yeah. But yeah, before 2000. <laughs> okay, fair enough.
0: I mean, I was pulling this stuff up from your CV, and then you spent a little stint at Florida State, it looked like. Three years. Three years at Florida State. So you've been at uh, UC Davis for quite some time. mm -hmm. So that's really been like your academic home, it seems like, for the majority of your career. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I
1: would say that definitely the main part of my career has been at UC Davis in Interdisciplinary Department of Environmental Science and Policy while my First posting at Florida State University was in a more traditional political science department. Okay. Um, that happened to have some policy and environmental policy people in it. For example, Evan Ringquist was there. Oh, yeah. Um, when Evan. I, when I first arrived there.
0: Yeah. Sure, yeah. Okay. So he was one of my professors at Indiana University when right. I was there. Yeah. Well, that's actually an interesting place to start. So you got a PhD in political science and then you ended up in an interdisciplinary policy oriented department. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Is that. Was that something you were really looking for that you wanted to get? Well, you were you in a political science department at Florida State with Evan then?
1: With Evan, right. Okay. And uh, um, yeah, he was the other main environmental policy person there at the time. Okay. Yeah.
0: And so were you interested in, in being in a more kind of interdisciplinary policy-oriented
1: environment um, generally? Yeah. I, I think like fairly quickly I became interested in more interdisciplinary work where I still had a foundation of political scientists but I wanted to be able to branch out and work with all kinds of different scientists, um, other sorts of social scientists, you know, natural scientists, engineers, and I, one of the reasons was I just found that more intellectually interesting mm-hmm. to be able to connect with all kinds of different ideas. It was more fun for me, and the other reason is that I believe that to do really good environmental policy, you really have to connect the social science with the biophysical sciences, and right. because you're really dealing with how social processes and governance institutions and politics uh, links to things that are happening out there in ecosystems or in infrastructure systems. You need to understand that, you know, how they operate in the intersections between those. And you really don't get that training in many political science departments and as right. far as just uh, traditional political science training. So um, for that reason, I think that, you know, the to, to really do good environmental policy requires an interdisciplinary approach. Okay. So, and would you say that then that my impression that, this,
0: that interdisciplinary work has typified your research career when I've looked at some of your work, it seems like there's, well, I'm not a political scientist, so I don't know how up-to-date I am on like, what looks like political science and what doesn't. But when I've seen your work on like, collaborative watershed management, et cetera, I mean, would you call that like straightforward political science or am I correct in saying that that, is, that does seem like a little bit more interdisciplinary?
1: Well, uh, the way I think about it is that if you take any of these uh, research projects that I work on, say climate adaptation in the Bay Area or sustainable groundwater management in California, yeah, there are core disciplinary political science, public administrations and uh, public management, public policy questions, core disciplinary questions embedded in those projects. Yeah. Okay. So what I do is I try to th- think about, uh, you know, which of aspects of the project can really speak to that disciplinary audience. And then I write up that aspect of the project for a disciplinary audience to answer right. a core policy or political science question. And for me, the driving question Um, that's core to political science is how to solve cooperation and collective action problems, which is kind of the driving question for me and all in that, that links together all of my research. Okay. And if you look at, uh, Eleanor Ostrom's 1998 address to the American Political Science Association, she says that that is the number one question in political science. So I basically use that to say, like, look, this is an established approach in political science and an established question in political science, and I'm studying it in this way, in this particular setting, or or this particular project illustrates this aspect of it, and then I write that up. Then at the same time, um, if you think about people from the more applied perspective, Uh, They are interested in solving these sorts of problems, so you can write up the more applied perspective or interdisciplinary perspective um, kind of by reversing the emphasis. So, So there's aspects of the research that speak to the more interdisciplinary applied perspective. And if you work in an interdisciplinary department like mine, you have the freedom to write up both aspects and maximize the amount of knowledge and benefits that you get out of any particular research project rather than being Um, confined to writing up the aspects of your research that only speak to a particular discipline. Yeah. So were you,
0: was that a great moment when, like, when Lynn wrote up that 1998 piece? Were you, like, really pumped at that? Yeah, I was
1: definitely pumped at that and other things that she wrote that really kind of do some agenda setting, like the Nobel Prize address and stuff like that, which, which is good ammo for, uh, you know the introductory sections of various papers right. to, to rely on her her work and saying you know some of my work kind of extends and um, or builds on her work. So if you can kind of identify the the pillar on which you're standing, that's a, a useful tool. It's helpful. Yeah. yeah. Were you interested in the themes of collective action, social dilemmas, etc.
0: When you first? Um, entered your PhD program was that like one of the motivating
1: I've always ideas? yeah that's always been the motivation for me it wasn't really explicit at the beginning so the motivation for me to study what I study honestly came from fly fishing in Colorado where I was went the my home stream in Colorado was uh called the um Miracle Mile between uh Spinny Reservoir and Eleven Mile Reservoir up in South Park. Like there is actually a place called South Park. It's not is just really? a cartoon. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So and I fished there all the time through high school. I guided there a little bit, all through college and over and it really got popular. You know, it was written written up in Fly Fishing Magazine. And even though it was a catch and release place, they were still, you know, the fishery crashed basically. Some disease and overfishing or you know, just too much pressure and the fishery mm. really crashed and I was looking at that and bemoaning it and saying there's too many tourists up here. And then I read Governing the Commons, and I was like, oh, yeah, there's this common pool resource and cooperation and governance. And that that initially, that, that was when I was an undergrad at UC San Diego. And that intellectual spark was created then, and I carried that not in a particularly strategic manner to stony brook because it turned out that at stony brook nobody did environment but in the political science department nobody did environment they did public policy and i was lucky enough that without even really knowing what i was doing that john schultz was there who was really deeply embedded in the literature on governance and collective action okay he happened to be studying it in the context of tax policy so you see my first two papers when I was a research assistant with him on tax policy. Mm-hmm. And it took about, you know, um two months working with IRS data to decide there's no way that I'm gonna spend my life, life like... on tax compliance. So Yeah, yeah. I wanted to I told them at Stone my advisor at Stonebook I want to work on environmental policy and they were uh kind enough to accommodate it. And it turned out to be a fun project for For John Schultz, too, and we, I mean, he basically changed his focus to environmental policy as a product of our initial collaboration that we had when when I was a grad student.
0: All right, and so in getting back to, because one of the things that I find so inspiring about ideas of collective action, social dilemmas actually is their kind of universal applicability. So I've got a colleague um, in the PhD program that I'm in. Um, who studies collective action among bacteria, right? Because they have to solve basically the same problems. For them, the public good is a biofilm that maybe we actually don't want them to produce. But for them, it's, you know, why should any one of them produce this thing if if other people are going to, not other people, other bacteria are going to free ride on it. Right. Um, So it actually seems like a really effective concept to use as a basis
1: for, say, interdisciplinary collaborations. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I... Worked with a guy where we talked about, uh, you know, nitrogen-fixing bacteria in legumes, and that, you know, the and trying to solve the free riding problem about the bacteria that takes the nitrogen, but does or it takes the sugars, but doesn't yeah. give the nitrogen. So there's free. So yeah, I mean, I think that um, these sorts of collective action problems where interdependencies occur and you have to solve these sorts of problems are key principles in the self-organizing of many many different systems bi- right. bi- biological social physical systems and so you see that idea appearing all over the place you know it's in- it's interesting from a political science policy perspective but because it's such a fundamental aspect of human society and complex social organizations you see it everywhere so for example i often tell my students when i'm teaching them about it i'm about to give you a curse i'm going to curse you with the, vi- <laughs> the vision of collective action problems you're going to start looking around you're going to see them everywhere and have right. to start thinking about how to solve these problems and how human society not just in the environment but in your everyday life so you know ask them to talk about their their common management of their kitchen in their shared in their shared apartments as right. soon as it's we everywhere. start talking about that they all get it they they just get the idea that cooperation is this central thing that they have to deal with all the time. Okay. Yeah. And so speaking about your students too, I mean, I, I also have the impression that in your
0: work you engage with a lot of non-academic actors. And so there's this in, interdisciplinary part. And I've been engaging a lot with folks recently about this concept of transdisciplinarity, you know, which I, I have, I have a growing understanding of as, as involving working with non-academic actors, but to an extent where you're not, you're not necessarily going in and saying, okay, these are the questions and now I'm going to answer them, but it's you're actually engaging with these non academic partners to figure out what the questions should be in the first place. Yeah. Has that also been kind of a part of your work, you would say, in, yeah, in California,
1: and other places? It's a very strong part of my work that has, I think, evolved and matured over the years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of elements to that, but, it, uh, you know, one of the Couple of the key elements are that I think it's the responsibility of us as researchers to give back to the communities that we are studying, and right. what and and say what can our research um, tell you about the decision making, making society better off that you and that we should that we should be giving that back if we can, right? And given the type of research I do, it's you know. Those fundamental, basic research questions about cooperation—they are directly at hand every day in the decision-making processes of the various policy actors. So it's really easy to take the lessons learned from the research and say, "Hey, um, here's what we learned. I think this might help you guys um, make better decisions." And then the other really important thing about the policy-engaged research is that you get—you're in the field in a sense. You're—you're you're really connecting with what's act the phenomena that you are studying right. so you're able to formulate research questions that are directly relevant to the actual phenomena and seeing the processes unfold and and formulate hypotheses that connect the theory to the empirical phenomena in a, in a more concrete way right so you're not sitting there in the ivory tower making stuff up you're actually you're <laughs> okay you're, yeah you're actually you know Getting this uh, dialogue between the theory and the phenomena—that's I think really needed to to, to uh, do good science and, yeah, yeah. and collect data in a meaningful way that allows you to test and develop and test hypotheses and 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 move the theory forward and then take the lessons from the theory and apply it. Um, so I think there's a real um, synergy between theory and policy engaged research that that I try to operate at. Um, some, some people call it in the, uh, use inspired basic research in the, uh, what's the, 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 four, the two by two table. Sure. cause um, so I think it stokes, uh, Oh, two, it's like basic versus ta- applied yeah. use versus non-use Yeah, or it's basic versus applied and, and there's sort of a basic, there's a, there's a nexus between basic and applied, which is called use inspired basic research. And okay. I, and I'm perfectly comfortable living in that world and.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I imagine part of what helps being comfortable is engaging with a diversity of different types of folks. I mean, you got to kind of live in your academic world, but then you actually kind of have to get out to the field and talk to people in using different, you know, not using academies
1: so much maybe. Yeah, Yeah, you have to be able to translate the theoretical concepts that might be floating around your head into um, practical terms that people can relate to. And you have to have some good skills at doing that, so... Um, which maybe you're not always taught during your PhD. You're not taught that in your PhD. (laughs) Not most, most PhD programs do not teach you how to do that. Um, Yeah. The reason I can talk to good, uh, most people pretty easily is that I was a waiter for a long time, so I can kind of talk to anybody. So that that was as important training for me as, um, you know, reading a bunch of theory.
0: Yeah. God, I was a bad waiter at a busy Italian restaurant for like a month and. It was like the hardest job I've ever had, just like engaging with people. And now it's like, oh, I I can like actually write stuff down in like long form, et cetera, and like take my time to remember it. So getting back to your department and your center with respect to some of these issues. So the department is is Department of Environmental Science and Policy. And then this very interesting name for the center, partly because it has the word behavior in it. Mm -hmm. And honestly, so in a previous episode, I was talking to Chris Anderson at UC Boulder, and he works at a... A center that studies uh, behavior as well at UC Boulder. And I kind of wonder whether there's some similarities between those two. So I guess an initial question is how, you know, you basically just described a set of um, values or norms. Do you see those values embodied in either your department or your center and is was that something that attracted you to them or is that something you've tried and or is that something you tried to
1: build during your time there
0: like institutionally
1: yeah both I would say I mean I think that our department as an in interdisciplinary environmental science and policy department has always had a pretty strong tradition of policy engagement with lots of decision makers so you'll see lots of the faculty and other researchers in my department that have, pretty deep policy engagements and including appointments to various boards and stuff like that. Okay. Um, but definitely within the center itself, um, uh, my co-directors and I, Tyler Scott, Gwen Arnold, and myself are the three faculty co-directors. Okay. Um, we definitely, uh, encourage policy engaged research and like encourage students to write reports up, even, you know, or policy briefs and try to get that out to policymakers in various ways or the public in various ways to make sure that the our research has some r- real world implications or some some benefits to the real world. Okay. And we make we we make space for that and value it for sure and I think more universities are are valuing that as part of the the service part of of the job they right. don't, maybe don't value it enough but um, but we definitely try to sure. create that culture within the within the group. Okay. And can we actually take a step back, too, and, and help me understand,
0: listeners understand, kind of, what is, what is the relationship between the center and the department, and how is your kind of time divided? Where are different master's or PhD programs housed oh, that man. might be interesting? Like, it's, some listeners might be interested right. in knowing, like, how they might. So
1: UC Davis is interesting because it has a very um, – Strong interdisciplinary culture. So okay. the department itself is interdisciplinary. It was born in the '70s. Um, my colleague uh, uh, Pete Richardson, who was one of the founding members of the department, said that the universe or that the uh, university administrators basically shook the university and all the loose nuts f- rolled out and fell into the <laughs> uh, Department of Environmental Science and Policy. So people that kind of maybe didn't fit in their uh, home departments kind of formed this uh, more inner. Interdisciplinary department to start out with, but it's become more explicit over over the years. So within that department is my center, which is basically um,
0: within the department.
1: You said okay. within the departments within the department. Um, it's got a little bit of initial funding to to start it up from the administration as part of a job counter offer. Actually, okay. it said give me some money because I want to hi- hire some staff to support this 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 research center. But it's not a formally um, you know, organized research unit that's got the blessings of multiple layers of administration. I bi- Basically, um, Paul Sabatier had something like it and I built on that scaffold and it was built from the bottom up. Okay, And it's a, it's a um, organizational umbrella for our research group. Okay. Um, and the graduate students, postdocs, undergrads, the three faculty, it's kind of a social organizational unit and it draws its, graduate students from multiple graduate programs so the way that that uh, uc davis organizes its graduate groups is that they span their boundary spanning institutions so like if you take the graduate group in ecology which is one of the main groups which i from which i draw graduate students it span it has faculty from my department ecology plant pathology you know, vet med, a bunch of different departments that where the right. faculty sit, and then the graduate students come in through that through the ecology program. And the there's a social science subdivision of that ecology program called environmental science. Uh, sorry, uh, environmental policy and human ecology. So we, I take graduate students through that, and then we have geography students. I'm I'm affiliated with the geography program. I'm affiliated with the political science department. Program I'm affiliated with the hydrological sciences program and the transportation technology and policy program. And over the years, graduate students funnel through those programs and then all kind of unite in the context of the Center for Environmental Policy and Behavior. And we try to say that your first identities with the Center for Environmental Beha- Policy and Behavior and the, the research group, because we're all kind of looking at common Think social science ideas and methods, mm-hmm. um, but different sorts of issues. And then the next thing you, is your graduate program, as far as uh, interesting what your class requirements are, and your so like every every one of these graduate programs has different uh, baseline requirements and stuff yeah. like that.
0: I mean, it sounds really healthy. It also reminds me of the Ostrom workshop at Indiana.
1: Yeah, that's it's uh, <clears throat> on the research side of things, and the research group organization and the culture of it. Because Gwen is there, um, we explicitly sure, right. say we want it to have the same type of culture of engaged scholarship and cooperation and yeah. trust and cooperation, not competition that the Ostrom Workshop has. So we really want to, we don't have as much money, obviously, and, and not, as, not, not as large of an operation as Ostrom Workshop did and, and still has, but that spirit is what we're trying to create.
0: Yeah, it's so valuable. My increasing impression, I don't know, when I was in grad school, it was sometimes described to me as, as if it should be like a monastic experience, which I always kind of chafed at. I didn't want to just be off on a mountain by myself, kind of writing
1: thoughts. Yeah, that's the exact opposite of the culture that we try to create. I really um, want to, um, among all the junior researchers and faculty, create a culture of cooperation uh, where we um, help each other out, uh, share code, share ideas, collaborate. And, you know, for me, the health, the, 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 the sign that it's going well is when they are self organized and behind my back, and I learn not not to revolt, <laughs> right? But yeah, rather, yeah. like look, we made this reading group, and we've been doing this, and I've and I've just learned about it because they're like subgroups breaking off, doing things. They do things around methods. There's been a uh, uh, more of a kind of women in science group that they've organized. It's actually, um, the graduate student population in my group right now is a hundred percent women. There's oh, wow. not a okay. single. Uh, a male graduate student right now in our group. I mean, obviously that vacillates over time, but it's just an interesting factoid about the way the group is organized at the, uh, in, and constituted at the moment. But so, so you know there's a lot of that is going on, and there's very little that, at least that I see kind of competition um, among the graduate students. Obviously, at the end of the day, they have to, often competing for some of the, within the same job pool. But I like to think that the culture of cooperation that we have now in the group makes them better and more competitive relative to other uh, institutions at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, so I had, uh, I think I had known this, but I had forgotten that Pete Richardson was at UC Davis. He was, yeah. I mean, so this is Pete Richardson of like Robert, uh, uh, Boyd and Richardson Boyd and Richardson, yeah. Yeah, So one of
1: the founding figures in the theory of cultural evolution. Yeah. Um, He's actually one of the ones who really advocated for me to be hired in in, in my department um, because he knew that I was interested in cooperation problems, and he's also very interested in cooperation problems. And he he, he actually uh, went to UC Davis as an undergrad, grad student, faculty. He had his entire... academic career all the way through retirement was at uc davis that's unique yeah but he's a i would consider one of the uh you know uh, bona fide geniuses that i know there's a few of them that i think are that i've met in academia and he's definitely one of them yeah yeah he knows something about everything and it's in like something legitimate about everything it's amazing
0: right not just enough to fake it yeah
1: but he's done a lot of really interesting work on cooperation problems and the role of networks and social learning and cultural evolution uh, in in the context of cooperation so we sp- we spent a lot of time uh talking about that that's amazing i mean i would love to chat with you, with him
0: i mean it's i i remember my first uh introduction to him and Robert Boyd's work was a chapter in the 2002 book drama of the commons. Yeah. They have a chapter, I think it's called an evolutionary theory of commons management, you know, so they're talking as as if I can remember it about basically how there's an evolutionary mismatch between what we're kind of evolved to be able to do and what's required for our current environmental challenges. Yeah. And I just really loved this evolutionary framing. It kind of seemed to make sense to me.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of my, um, Research um, and theoretical development, including the ecology of games work, has a um, deep connection to evolutionary theory. I really think evolutionary theory is a really important aspect of um, what we see in society and complex systems. And uh, it comes in and out of um, the social sciences, but I've always felt it was a really important piece piece of the whole story.
0: Yeah, I mean, so maybe we can take that as an as a opportunity to talk about theory, about kind of its role in social science, about understanding of human behavior. Because, um, you know, I noticed, as I mentioned, that your center has the word behavior in it, mm-hmm. right? And so that implies an interest in studying human behavior, I assume. You just mentioned that, you know, the, the idea of evolution has gone in and out of the social sciences. I know some folks that think that we're being a bit hamstrung in our understanding of human behavior by excluding it. You know, kind of where do you come down on, on those issues, do you think? So here's one way to ask, ask the question. Um, there's been kind of this behavioral turn in economics and related social sciences in the last, you know, what, five, ten years, et cetera. So Richard Thaler winning the Nobel Prize in 2017, you know, ha- having most famously, popularly written the book Nudge with, I think, Case Sunstein in 2008. When you decided to name the center with the word behavior in it, were you... Thinking along those lines that we need to kind of understand human behavior in those ways. Does it, you know. is there Yeah, any-
1: so I mean, I think the behavior part comes from two things. One is um, to make sure that outside observers of the center understood that we were interested in not only the policy aspect, but the fact that individual level behavior is an important part of the whole equation so right. i do a lot of studies of farmer behavior i do a lot of studies of public opinion about the environment as in thinking about that aspect or 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 looking at individual decision makers within you know the set of kind of policy decision makers in a region so so there's that part to create so people know kind of what what some of the things are that we study but also it's trying to say look um, it's not just a rational choice model. Right. There's um, at the very least we're talking about bounded rationality, however you want to define that. But there's all kinds of interesting theories of individual level behavior that I have brought to bear in the context of many different research projects. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I tend to use cognitive theories, theories from cognitive psychology. Um, as the foundation for a lot of the things, uh, thinking about motivated reasoning and adaptive decision making, um, I I like uh, Pete Richardson's idea, which is in the ecology games framework. People don't often talk about it, but at the model of the individual that I that I say we should be using in the ecology games framework is the so called social tribal instincts mm-hmm. idea, which is basically. The, the two most important or maybe three most important ideas is one that people cooperate a lot more than you would expect from right. a rational choice perspective where that usually predicts no cooperation, but people cooperate all the time, for example, in one shot prisoners dilemma. So there's that, but that cooperation is also stronger within group and instead of outside of group, a particular group identity and also social learning is an important part of that. So how, people learn and imitate other people's behavior which can also lead to cooperation that may not be rational from a, the perspective of a economic decision model but still is seems to be the type of behavior that people actually do. so when right. I when I study farmers I want to know what what is the actual drivers of their behavior um, what are you know what behavioral strategies are they using what theories can I use to, you know, uh, illustrate or, or, or makes describe, sense of, make okay. sense of their behaviors. Yeah,
0: I mean, this is something I've struggled with in my own observational work, is what should the role of psychological, social psychological theory be in environmental social science? You know, when you, the tribal social instincts hypothesis, you yeah, described it? Yeah,
1: that model. Yeah, yeah
0: I mean, it, I've, that makes sense to me. I mean, it's kind of one of the interesting things about being a social scientist is as you're also, you know, Stefan Partzolo said this much better. Is I think it's, at, the object is also the subject, right? So we're all kind of making sense of these things internally. Anyway, and so there's been re- research that's tested aspects of that theory, as you kind of just describing that people tend to be much more pro-social within groups than we would necessarily expect. There's been some interesting research showing how even trivial markers of group identity lead to differences in how much you're willing to help people that have been trivially marked as being in your group or not. Right. Which, me, which would indicate that we're pretty hardwired to find something. Right. So if you go into a new study site, do you ever go into it? So a, a theory, another theory that I'm aware of that's been getting a lot of traction, a psychological theory I'm aware of, is getting a lot of attraction, attraction in um, conservation science is like crowding theory.
1: So if Any we start crowding of motivations, yeah, yeah yeah, yeah.
0: Is that what you're referring to actually when you talked about like motivational theory? Well
1: that, I mean, that's an aspect of it. Uh, motivated reasoning is related to like dual processing models of cognition, which is also talked about in uh, Daniel Kahneman's book, um, fast, the fast fast and slow? thinking, slow thinking. So it's like this idea that human beings are behaviorally They 99% of what we do, or some large numbers, is really fast thinking, heuristic thinking that people do. Um, And within that fast thinking approach, they do things like, you know, base decisions on group identity, which is a really fast heuristic, or they, uh, reject information that does not agree with their existing predispositions another really fast heuristic that's a good information processing or quick information processing but then sometimes people engage in the more slow thinking which seems to like be more like a rational approach and you in the motivated reasoning and dual processing, literature and social psychology they do experiments on trying to what factors can get people to kind of like switch oh, between a more rational approach versus a more heuristic based approach and i think that's a really important piece of the whole story is that it's not like people always use the exact same information processing strategy they are capable of some flexibility there under, di- under different conditions like one of my early uh, papers for example showed that Uh, people who participate in collaborative processes, they are less likely to rely on their basic core values of environment and economy to evaluate the outcomes of, uh, you know, evaluate others, basically, and and how cooperation than people outside the collaborative process. So in other words, it's like the collaborative process itself actually helps them switch to a a a slower mode of thinking that is not as reliant on their basic core values to shape their judgment so you actually see some of that in you can see some of that or think of that as as part of the story of collaborative governance for example
0: okay so do you think it's a part of what i'm calling environmental social science to actually contribute to developing these theories of human behavior is that part of what we're trying because there's different things you could mean by theory. You could mean a theory of human behavior. You could mean a theory of human environment interactions, like the tragedy of the commons or roving banditry, or these kind of archetypal patterns that we see in the world. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think I think in in the best cases, the sort of research we would do could contribute to the development of the theory of individual decision making that's at hand. Uh, you know some people have talked about oh we need like a special theory of individual decision making for social ecological systems or something like that and I'm not so, I'm not so enamored of that position I would say most of the time we're, we are taking theories that are developed in cognitive psychology or economics as a theory of rational choice and applying it in the context of these environmental issues and thinking about which which theories or which parts of the theories are most relevant for understanding the phenomena that we're studying
0: right okay so the ecology of games framework yeah I, I actually sent you an email I remember last year at some point last academic year because I started to use aspects of that framework in my main environmental policy and governance class which by the way I'd love to one of the things I'd love to do um, in the future is create a resource where folks like us can actually share things like syllabi, et cetera, and learn more directly about like what we're teaching and how we're using it. Because yeah. it, it's more increasingly, it's made sense to me to frame the so the, the course I teach is very much case based, and the students have to use kind of a common framework to look at say the Mississippi River and how we're engineering it and managing it and governing, it, et cetera. Um, Lots of different. We, we read COD by Kurlansky this year for the first time looking at that. And so I'm, I'm encouraging them to look at these different, you know, Ostrom might have called them action situations, et cetera. I think I've heard you, correct me if I'm wrong, broadly compare kind of the game as you use it to an action situation. But it's been very effective in the course that I teach to kind of ask the students, okay, where are the different games? Which actors are playing them? What are their incentives and information? And then how do the games relate to each other to help us understand the whole system? It's been a really helpful pedagogical tool.
1: Yeah. Well, I, so, uh, you know, if you want to think about the origins of the ecology of games theory, which I consider a theory of polycentric institutions, not a
0: framework, or does that distinction matter to you?
1: Oh, it doesn't matter too much. Okay, I've been trained to care yeah. about it. I can okay. drop it. Call it a framework. I can call drop it a it. theory, whatever you want. I, I've i had that fight with multiple, multiple reviewers. Now it's, it's, it's been, a, there's been enough back and forth on that, that I think maybe it's not that big of a deal. So, so, right. so just call it a theory of polycentricity. Like the re- the most recent paper that we wrote s- that sort of summarizes what we've learned so far, far. Far, the editor insisted we call it a theory now. So, fine. Okay. the Editor of PSJ says it's a theory. It's a theory. Um, but you know, but it It used to be the original fight was that oh, the ecology of games isn't new because it's just polycentricity. But polycentricity has no theory, really. There's not not really a theory of polycentricity in my in my view about how polycentric the structure and process and function of polycentric institutions. So the ecology of games is is meant to be is meant to serve that purpose. And, and so it it originated from the idea from a paper that I wrote where I was studying uh, collaborative land use and transportation planning in California, and we were focusing on just the partnerships around. Uh, Kind of uh, regional planning for 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 land use and transportation in several regions of California, like the SACOG process in Sacramento, was one of our studies, and it was around the um, metropolitan planning organizations. But then my, we were doing the I was doing the analysis, and it turned out that people's evaluations of cooperation in the SACOG process interacted with their participation in other more traditional land use planning things, and it was a negative interaction. And I'm sitting there going, why is it the case that people who participate in SACOG, they, they don't like it as well if they do things outside of SACOG? And that made reminded me of uh, uh, Norton Long's Ecology of Gains paper that I had read in graduate school and kind of was like, that's cool because it had the word ecology in it, But but then I didn't really pick it up again. And then I said, this is what this is. This is kind of this ecology of games, polycentricity in action. So I took that, that paper, which was in AJPS, American Journal of Political Science, was the first kind of time that I tried to write that down. And then I started thinking, you know, this is a broader phenomenon. It links to polycentricity. So now I'm going to try to write down the whole framework and try to do. And that's the 2013 PSJ piece. And then I've been trying to convince people like yourselves and others to use this framework, and I think – The experience has been like you described, Mike, which is once you start thinking about the fact that in any given region, the Mississippi River, the Gulf of Mexico, the Gulf of Maine, when you start thinking about it, you can't avoid but seeing the fact that there's multiple policy processes happening all the time. It's like you instantaneously recognize it. And once you start seeing it everywhere, you have to say to yourself, okay, we have to deal with this as policy analysts or governance theory people, because that is the reality of what's going on out there. There's and r- it affects
0: outcomes like that.
1: Huge effect. I mean, all they interact in these all these complex ways to affect outcomes. Right. And it's not like we can take one policy tool, here's the policy tool that's one of a hundred different things going on, or the policy or the collaborative partnership that's one of a hundred different things going on, be able to understand how all that governance stuff interacts with the outcomes of the system you have to deal with the whole system right so so that's been the driving motivation of what i've been doing and then when i go to policymakers turning back to what we talked about yesterday or earlier not yesterday feels like it seems like yesterday that when you talk to them about it they're like oh yeah that's it that they recognize that that is the environment in which they operate and they right. would like some help in navigating it as we've talked about earlier in this workshop and understanding how to structure it uh how to how to, how to deal with that mess
0: yeah yeah okay well so i have two two follow-up questions that occur to me immediately one is you're staving up polycentricity as being theoryless, we. I just we. We'll, let's go back to that for like one or okay. two minutes. I, I remember. I think I actually emailed you about a blog post you had about polycentricity, and gosh, I'm trying to remember what it actually said that I really liked. And I think maybe part of it was that you know is kind of that the 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 literature that I had read on it it did seem at least theory light that it was it, it honestly it felt kind of. Almost like the new panacea that this community was kind of latching onto, which of course for me felt like kind of problematically ironic because one of our pillars of our discourse is that there's no panacea. Right. And it, I've, I've come to feel like it's almost. You know, almost back to the tribal social instincts hypotheses is that these having a certain panacea in a policy-relevant field becomes a marker for your community. Right.
1: So, yeah, I mean, I agree with that. So if you go back, in my view, if you go back to the original papers and discussion about polycentricity in the, you know, uh, uh, Thiebaud-Warren-Ostrom paper, I think 1961, yep. it was really, there was some theory there. Right. And the theory was that you're going to look at a metropolitan system and you're going to have a polycentric system compared to some sort of gargantuan or monocentric system right. and ask which type of system is better at delivering local public goods. Right. And the argument, the theoretical argument there was that because the polycentric system enabled this type of tibu sorting process of people voting with their feet, that the local government, the, the multiple local government jurisdictions within a metropolitan region would kind of compete with each other and provide the package of public goods that would satisfy their citizens. And anytime there was interjurisdictional externalities, those externalities would be resolved by some sorts of uh, cooperative arrangements. Right. And then the, th- in my view that the, th- the theory, the, the concept of polycentricity took off from there and kind of said, okay, there's these multiple levels. So and eventually evolved into what you described as this normative panacea. It's like, okay, how are we going to solve climate change? We're going to make it polycentric. How are we going to solve X, Y, Z? Polycentric, polycentric, polycentric. Right. But when you look at the reality of the situations, every single one, there is really no monocentric. monocentric. Yeah. I mean, I would love for somebody to prove me wrong and show me like here is a, a system uh, or env- environmental problem where it's a purely monocentric system, especially anything of beyond like a small system. Uh, maybe, maybe you can find some of their small systems once you get, so everything is polycentric, which means that we need to do more than just say, Oh, we're going to suggest polycentrism and it looks like this. We need to understand how, what processes operate on in it. You know, how, what, how do the polycentric systems vary? The dimensions, how many right. dimensions do they vary along? What's Given that there's multiple ways that polycentrism might be manifest, what type of polycentric structures do you need under what sorts of circumstances? Because that's the key to institutional fit. Right. So it's not like, poly, yeah, sure, you can say we're going to use uh, a polycentric approach, but that's in a sense saying nothing if you can't adapt the structure of those polycentric systems to fit the particular type of collective action problem that um, is as at hand, and I believe that if you look at Ostrom's latest, the her final writings on that is she was heading towards that approach. I think hmm. that that's like underlying her writing about no panacea, and underlying her idea of diagnostic approaches. It's yeah, it's all polycentric, but we're going to try to like get in and figure out uh, what aspects of that really matter under what under different situations, rather than just using a I mean, the blanket idea.
0: Yeah, yeah. Have you... I think she's at either UC Boulder. Uh, Rebecca Gruby has written some interesting stuff about polycentricity. I think almost along these lines of kind of really thinking about, like, what is this actually... What predictions can we actually make with the current state of the theory?
1: Yeah. Yeah, like her work.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, does, it is interesting because it does... It has seemed to mirror some of the ways in which, you know, the the panacea discourse around say ITQs or other things have gone. There's kind of a just so story about how things should go. And I don't and it's also, you know, adaptive, collaborative co management. There's lots of different you know, every policy seems to be possibly subjectable to this kind of dynamic where right. you get a group of people to say, Hey, this is the best new thing. Yeah. And yeah. it's because it's harder. I think what you're describing is harder to, to it's it's easier to write a page about how great this could be if we could only do it versus like, OK, like how do these different elements actually interact?
1: Right. Yeah. In my view, you know, if you take the sort of research I'm doing and others that have been, you know, using the ecology games framework or network analysis or something like that to, to try to to understand how polycentricity operates empirically, we don't have a lot of research on it. Where We don't have a lot of understanding on the relationship between the structure and function of polycentric governance arrangements and outcomes or cooperation. It's really only – it's very early stages despite the fact that everything out there is like that. So it's like – we're just you know taking a look over the cliff here on on it and we need way more research on it to be able to come up with the, the answers to the questions that you get asked at the end of every conference which is like well, what about the relationship to outcomes what do you know about outcomes or something right, right. like that um we need a lot more research and so that's you know one of the things i've talked about at the succinct meetings and, and basically a lot of venues is that one of the projects i would like to complete before i retire um you know maybe i'll retire early who knows um is trying to work with people to establish a, uh, an observatory network for social ecological systems that really establishes these things over lots of different contexts over a long period of time with instrumentation both for the social side and the governance side and the individual behavior side and also the biophysical outcome side of things and just try to see how these things co-evolve co- over time. And I think until we have that type of long-term approach that's got a, spa- a large spatial extent and a long, long temporal extent, we're never going to answer some of the most fundamental questions that we would like to know. We'll always be saying we don't know this in the conclusions of our papers. Um, and because we just don't have the, the research infrastructure in place to um, provide those answers.
0: And so if you were going to state a question that you would really want to answer with that approach that we just can't right now, like, what, what would be your top one or two questions that you'd want to really
1: get at with this? Well, like, for example, do the institutions change incrementally or with punctuations? What does mm. that look like over time? Do, does cooperation kind of continuously evolve in a positive manner or is it like when the simulations you get cooperation for a while and then like a punctuated equilibrium where there's a big period of conflict. Does that go back and forth over time? Okay. How do the institutions co-evolve with the outcomes? You know, lots of interesting questions. Sure. Okay. Um, so another question that occurred to me,
0: and I like, this as kind of a final topic because it feels like we are going to like, what, where should we be heading? Um, so we know things are complex. We know that there's all these different games being played by different actors across large systems. And this has been something that I've struggled with a lot, say, in the CESMAD project, is that we, we built this big database to allow people to add all of these different components of a system, of one case, And then you can connect the the components via these interactions, right? So, like, these fishers are fishing over here on this fishery, and, like, that's an interaction. But then they also, like, go to these public meetings, et cetera. And you can put all that into a database. And what we found in that project was that the more – and this is is universal. This is complexity versus generality, right? The more complexity we built into, first, the structure of the database – and the more then that led to complexity in the characterization of the cases, it became simply logistically more difficult to compare the cases, right? I had to do some, for me, complicated SQL queries to actually get the data into like a spreadsheet that would be processable by anything like Excel or Stata or something. Is that, I mean, is that something you've thought about? I mean, because well, yeah. there's this
1: tension, right? Like, yeah, no, I, I, I 100% agree with you. There's this tension. so. I mean, I, I like the SES framework and and you know you're, what you're attempting to do with that database is good because it's bringing some synergy together uh, among, among all these case studies. But the, the problem with the SES framework, I, its most fundamental problem to me, is that it keeps adding variables. Like every se- new study seems to add yet another variable to the framework and the second order variable. So you get this explosion of variables and the number of variables starts to approach the complexity of the phenomena. Right. And then it... it It almost becomes useless as a theory at that point, and it's hard to grapple with just the research infrastructure of of managing that many variables, let alone making sense of which variables are the most important when and stuff like that. Right. Um, And and so we yeah so there's some we have to think about the utility of that, but. But studying complexity does not need to be itself complex. One of the nice things about, for example, theories of complex systems, if you look like at the work of Simon Levin, whose whose work on complex adaptive systems I like to cite a lot, it's, you know, there's like three governing principles of them. So I think that the science should be heading in that direction. What are the simple rules that generate the complexity? It goes back to why I think about evolution. Evolution is based on very simple rules, but look at the massive complexity that evolution generates. It generates incredibly, incredible complexity, but it generates it on the basis of a lot of quite simple processes. And I think the same is going to be true for for governance, we need to look, we need to start thinking about what are those simple ideas that that drive that complexity. And one way to think of like improving policy, for example, is not so much like choosing the right configuration of variables or choosing this or that policy tool, but it's actually to create a process or enable a process of creative discovery. Of solutions that the people themselves can engage in. So let those simple rules play out in a way that leads to these solutions that are more sustainable or more resilient or something like that. And one can think of democracy from that perspective. It's like enables the evolution of of institutions in, in a way that's freed from some particular or at least somewhat more free, should I say, from some particular individual or group saying this is exactly how it should be. Right, it's this kind of creative destruction that you know is talked about, and um, yeah. So, so, anyways, I mean, that's my thought on the how complexity plays out um, in the study of complex systems.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so. I'll say this half jokingly then, but so you wouldn't say that what we need is a broadly comparative research project that generates enough observations and degrees of freedom so that we can shove two hundred independent variables into like the master regression equation.
1: Yeah. I, I think in the end that probably is not gonna be the thing that gives us the breakthrough on understanding the thing that what drives yeah, yeah. I think I think we're gonna I think we should be always keeping an eye on how we st- come up with the simplest theoretical framework that we can that is capable of generating the complexity that we see.
0: Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, that's a nice, it's a nice principle, really. I kind of I need to kind of think about that, right? Like studying complexity does not need to be itself complex. Um okay, well, we've kind of run the gamut of a fair fair number of things at this point. Are there other Aspects that we haven't talked about of your work that you'd like to highlight at this point, or, or kind of threads that we started that you want to make sure that we finish before wrapping up.
1: Uh, I mean, I guess the last thing that's worth saying is that if you look at what I'm doing now, I'm studying climate adaptation a lot using this approach, and and uh, the reason I'm doing that, and that I think that. Sorry, one, Mark. You'd say using the ecology of games approach. Yeah, yeah, using ecology of games, studying it from the complexity and polycentric approach is okay. And and the reason I'm. Think I'm doing that a lot now is um, number one. I think climate adaptation is substantially a crucial thing we need to understand given the amount of climate change that's expected to occur in the next century. Um, but also because it really gives you an opportunity from a theoretical perspective to see the creation of institutions right in front of you because for the climate adaptation stuff, people are creating new institutions to deal with it. So when I do the policy-engaged research that we were talking about before, I'm sitting in the room watching the institutions get created and that's being able to witness that um, really helps me understand, I think, what's going on.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's... As you were saying that I kind of want, so it might seem obvious, but I'd love to just try to unpack it a bit more. It's like, why does it help to be able to watch something change? Why is it? what leverage does it give you analytically to say okay it was this way and now it's this way because people are trying things
1: the, the what what it gives you is a direct observation of the process of change instead of like saying okay we're going to go back in time or take something that's already changed and try to like intuit what's going on or decipher what's going on you're literally seeing it happen it's right. like seeing evolution happen right in front of, right in front of your face and so you can understand the relationship between the micro level decision making or thinking or attitudes that's going on in the individual decision making organization, how that interacts right. with the rules, going and how that interacts with the networks, how all the different levels—the macro, the meso, the micro—all work together and unfold over time. You're seeing that. You don't have to. Um, imagine it or like decipher it retrospectively you're 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 literally seeing it right there in front of you because your brain's just exposed to it it's it's, yeah yeah, you're directly exposed to it
0: okay yeah very cool uh final question all right it sounds like you would be you know if a phd student asked you for advice on doing a phd it sounds like one piece of advice you might give them is is do some field work is that true (laughs) yeah
1: well yeah i mean I, I think there's a role for mathematical theory if you're that type, or experiments too. I've okay. done experiments Fair too, uh, but if you want to really do uh, hardcore environmental policy, yeah, you got to. I think you really should be doing uh, some field work and talking to talking to decision makers, and uh, then picking the three easiest papers for you to write to make up there your you dissertation.
0: Yeah, best <laughs> dissertation is a done dissertation. Exactly. Cool. All right, Mark. Uh, any other thoughts or?
1: No, I appreciate the time and uh, thanks for uh, taking on these podcast series. It's, uh, I think, it's a good uh, use to to introduce researchers to the community. If you enjoyed this episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast, please feel free to share it with friends, colleagues, and on social media. You can find us on Twitter at find underscore underscore pod, or you can visit our website www.essnetwork net forward slash podcast on the website you will find a content and guest request form here we invite you to submit recommendations for content and guests you would like to hear on the podcast the podcast is available on apple podcasts spotify and stitcher and can also be streamed from our website this podcast is part of the environmental social science network for more information about the network and how to get involved please visit our website www.essnetwork.net thank you for supporting the podcast